Hello and welcome to a new episode of Beyond Borders. Uh, my name is Isabel and today I talked with Mark. And Mark is um, working as a field coordinator on Malta. That means his position is between um, the government and between these um, search and rescue NGOs, for example, um, which are currently based on Malta. So um, he was able to give me some more background information about the situation um, politically and internationally, which um, created this um, situation we have on Malta right now. So he is really well informed, um, which can maybe make it a bit hard to follow him. So no worries if you don't understand everything he's saying. Maybe you don't know every name he's mentioning, or you don't know every um, single historical event um, he's talking about. That's totally okay. I think you can understand him quite well, even without um, knowing too much about international relations um, or anything like that. But um, if you have any specific questions about what he's um, saying or anything, um, you can always send me an email or a DM on Instagram, Beyond Borders Podcast. Um, and I can also send him your text message. And um, yeah, so um, just give it a try and um, enjoy. Um, hello, I'm Mark. Um, what am I doing? I'm doing a number of things at the moment. I'm wearing several hats. Um, I'm finishing my studies in international humanitarian action. Um, but uh, something which predated that was uh, in my time in Malta, was working with the search and rescue NGO community. And um, my more recent role was as a, as a field coordinator based on the fact that I had just been working in Malta the longest and had um, had a bunch of contacts. And I came here specifically for that reason in 2017. Um, but uh, at the time I came, there were considerably more NGOs operating from Malta. And gradually, one by one, they, uh, they you know, you could say left, but uh, were also kind of um, made unwelcome. And uh, Lifeline was the only NGO currently remaining in Malta while the legal process was going on regarding the captain. And so Malta coordinator really was very much Lifeline coordinator. Okay, so what do you currently do here? What is your daily task? So um, my tasks are really, are really tied to the situation of the NGO. Um, and I'm a lot busier when... Um, When, when there's a mission planned and um, managing the kind of pre and post mission stuff that uh, connects directly with Malta. So this could be kind of like taking an agent role, um, ensuring that like uh, basic logistic demands are met. It can also be uh, a much more kind of political and legal role. So trying to build bridges between the NGO community and um, government officials and the legal apparatus, which allows us to to try and operate as smoothly as possible. Currently, all the NGOs are pretty much banned from Malta, banned from operating from Malta, even using it as a as a logistics base. So um, this is quite a challenging time, but um, the Mediterranean situation is still evolving and, and we've just had a change of government. So I'm hoping that maybe we can, we can work towards reopening that space 
and and mobilizing um, even non-governmental actors in Malta, civil society groups, the church to continue helping us push open that space and build build bridges between the NGO and, and the people that matter. So you got quite a lot of experiences um, in the Maltese um, situation regarding the refugee crisis. Um, what is the general political attitude um, atmosphere right now in Malta? Um, it's, it's, it's evolved. Um, the problem is for a lot of Northern Europeans, we really look at this as a, as a recent thing. We talk about, um, we kind of have this, this post 2015 crisis narrative, whereas Malta is kind of a little bit past that. And they see this as, um, um, as like a process that's been ongoing for over a decade. So they are considerably more advanced in, in their exposure and their fatigue to the Mediterranean kind of migratory situation and the conversations we're having now and the things that we're saying, they have thought and said um, as a society since 2002. So I think it's quite difficult to align our own understanding of the situation with maybe um, Malta's experiences as a kind of like frontline, frontline state, particularly one that has such a, a long and and close political relationship with, with Libya and the Gaddafi. Um, Could you explain but, a bit more about this? I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, is not too um, informed about that. Yeah, so, so the Gaddafi... Mm -hmm. uh, um, well, I mean, you know, I, 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 this isn't a Gaddafi podcast and I, I, I would hate to kind of like give an opinion <laughs> about him. I, I don't really know that much about him. I know a little bit about his policies and... and um, so Gaddafi was um, the president of Libya and he was killed some years ago. So, and yeah. they had a good relationship between Malta and Libya then. Yeah, so he, he exactly, he um, he was overthrown in the Arab Spring. Uh, Libya was one of the countries that uh, unfortunately collapsed under the Arab Spring. And uh, I think he was, you know, it's quite widely accepted that he was a bit of a tyrant. He wasn't, uh, he didn't have a particularly good human rights record or particularly progressive strategies relating to... to um, to the value of, of human beings and human life. But, um, you know, and with the benefit of hindsight and looking at Libya now, I think we can say that Libya was a much more stable country and created a lot more um, human security for its uh, citizens then and, and even migrants then um, than, than it does now. So um, I think Malta recognized that. Malta has always been very kind of, so it's been kind of caught in this this kind of uh, slight European kind of North African Euro Mediterranean overlap. So I think they've they haven't had as much of a problem identifying connecting to to maybe North Africa. Um, I think the, the the similarities are cultural and and also with their language. Um, and I think they had a lot more access and a lot more bridges open to. Um, to Libya than than uh, maybe some Northern European countries um, do now, and and they understood it a lot better as well. They understood kind of what um, Gaddafi's priorities were, what Libya's, um, you know, what Libya's strengths were. It's an incredibly resource-rich country, oil-rich country, and and it made sense strategically for Malta to to make them an ally. Um, and there's a really interesting history there, but it's, it kind of strays a little bit away from, from the migration thing. But if we try and tie the two things together, Gaddafi was super ambitious and he pretty much had like a, an open border policy for, um, 
for African migrants who wanted to come and work in Libya, who wanted to come and build it up and, and kind of make it the queen of Africa. That was always his desire. And because of this, um, a huge number of migrants came to work in Libya. And generally, I think the quality of life was, was quite acceptable. Um, you know, the hard they worked, the more money they would earn. And, and you know, they'd had the choice whether to stay or, or go back when the work dried up. And because of this, after the 2011, um, the Arab Spring and the toppling of Gaddafi, when we kind of saw Libya spiral towards this this kind of huge power vacuum, um, a lot of um, these kind of like non-Libyan migrants who came there to work found themselves trapped in in the conflict and had at that time made Libya their home. And and to really really simplify the narrative, what you know, ultimately happened in, in the years that followed was that, uh, you know, we had, you know, tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who um, had, you know, two ways out of Libya. One was south, you know, through the through the desert and the land routes, and one was north uh, through the sea. Um, both were equally dangerous and both, you know, contributed to, to the deaths of thousands and thousands of people. <clears throat> but um, the Mediterranean route kind of points up north towards the EU and it's uh, it's a lot more of an occupied space. So we were able to witness this and and this became like a topic of, of European consciousness and conversation. Whereas the land route into the desert is pretty much uninhabited and, and we didn't see this. So we didn't think about it, we didn't talk about it and this, this wasn't something that, that, that bothered us. Um, but this was just as deadly a route um, and we, we didn't really, as a, as a kind of like continent become aware of it until, until very recently when actually a number of people dying, um, in the desert, either on the route or, or on the way out of Libya, you know, towards Niger actually started to overtake the number of people drowning at sea. And it's only now that we're kind of starting to realize just how big a, you know, how big a scale of disaster that was and, and remains. So, and since the Arab Spring, the relationship between Malta and Libya also changed a lot? Yeah, so um, Libya went from being a, a very simple state to have relations with because it had one kind of supreme supreme leader, Colonel Gaddafi, who was a kind of dictator of sorts. <clears throat> That meant the power pointed in one direction and and it was very kind of black and white, your relationship with Libya. You either... Um, you know, had a very friendly relationship with him, and and managed to get what you want, what you wanted, or or, or you didn't. Now um, there's this kind of constant jostling for power between all these different groups, and there are more than two thousand militias fighting each other, right? Yeah, I mean, in, you know, I think that number changes daily. But uh, you know, we have kind of two two main actors. We have the um, We have Al Sarraj, who's the who's the president of the Government of National Accord, which is the kind of UN and EU and UN Security Council recognized government. And unfortunately, it's very small. It only really accounts for a tiny bit of you know a tiny bit of <clears throat> of Libya, really just Tripoli, and not even all of Tripoli at that, just the north. And, um, and then we have General Haftar from the, the Libyan, you know, he's currently leading the Libyan National Army in a, in a bid to take over the country. And arguably, he's far more powerful. And then in the middle, you have a lot of these militia groups that are kind of loosely aligned to one or the other, who are pretty much, 
kind of mercenary at this stage. They're chasing whatever benefits their own interest and their own survival more. But ultimately, their their kind of their kind of uh, master is is just, just money, um, and this means that you know on on the Monday they could be working for the GNA as a kind of like um, you know in, in a coast guard capacity, um, bringing. That's a famous Libyan coast guard, then. Yeah, I mean, the the, the Lib- Libyan coast guard is pretty. Uh, it's pretty consistent now. Yeah, it's it's a pretty kind of stable group. But um, well, the problem is, it's it, you know, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like a shift work. You know, when you're working for the Libyan Coast Guard, you work with Libyan Coast Guard, and then five o'clock, you know, that's the end of your shift. You go home, and then suddenly you're working against, you know, you're working against what you're trying to do in the day. So you have there it, much less so now because of the added scrutiny. But there was a time, certainly um, 2017, 2018, where where the smugglers and the coast guard are very much the same people. And, um, you know, people would wake up in the morning and work for whichever paycheck was bigger. Mm. And uh, it created some very, very kind of strange dynamics. Um, and it's kind of going into a little bit of a better direction now, but it's still, we still have a little bit of that culture. Um, and as um, Haftar continues to kind of like uh, march onwards, um this is posing a, a disaster because a lot of foreign governments who really want to protect their own interests, um, partly because of Libya's strategic kind of um, place in 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 the, the Mediterranean Sea and the North African coast, um, and also partly because of its of its um, natural resources, uh, which is really just oil. Um, it's become a huge value to to a lot of people all over the world who want to take who want to take advantage of the of the, of the chaos and the lawlessness and so we have foreign powers like um, like Turkey and Russia who are turning this into their own kind of proxy war um, for countries like Russia and Turkey uh, less so Turkey but for countries like Russia this is a massive kind of um, you know footprint on on the doorstep of of the EU and uh, and and the Mediterranean region which is very far away from where they are and if they want to project their power um somewhere that's kind of threatening to us as you know as the EU this is the place to be and they're very aware of that and so we have a lot of <clears throat> a lot of uh russian mercenaries at the moment who are popping up here there and everywhere and um Turkey is responding to that in in equally worrying ways, and and I think um, that well we've seen Syrian uh, conscripts even being imported into the country, and rather than trying to work towards peace, um, too many countries have seen this chaos as an opportunity for them to take a slice of the pie, for them to profit from the chaos, and contribute their own military strength. And so now the situation in Libya is spiraling out of control. And of course, you know, without going too far into the geopolitics of it, um, what this means is that, um, you know, the people who are on the ground, the people who are in Libya trying to make sense of all this are those who are being displaced. <clears throat> Which, um, from a, a kind of European perspective, translates into um, more boats on the sea, more people, more people um, fleeing. 
So, and um, Malta is like one of the European countries which is um, the closest to Libya. So this is one of the um, countries which is most affected by the boats coming by the rivals. And um, which issues, which challenges is Malta as a country facing through that? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, you know, Malta and, and Italy, the two kind of central Mediterranean frontline countries. Um, Italy more so because of um, the islands like uh, like Lampedusa and uh, the even smaller one whose name I've forgotten. Pashalti, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, <clears throat> so they sit bang in the middle of the central Mediterranean corridor. So um, um, boats do, particularly in the case of Lampedusa, boats do manage to reach there organically. But um, perhaps more problematic is that um, these countries have, um, you know, what is known as a search and rescue region, which is a, a body of, of water and airspace um, around the islands, around their country, um, which is still international waters and airspace, but they have um, certain legal obligations towards. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so they have uh, um, responsibilities to, to coordinate um, search and rescue operations. Okay, one sec. Now, these search and rescue regions are very contentious because um, international maritime law was really built as a, as a kind of legal framework to, um, to account for more typical maritime situations and maritime actors. So... Um, how to coordinate an aircraft going down, um, you know, fishing vessels in distress, etc. Um, it wasn't really a framework that was designed to um, encroach on the space of asylum law and, uh, and the Refugee Convention, for instance. Mm. Um, and then when you tie into that other protocols regarding, um, you know, transnational organised crime and people smuggling you have a very, very complicated area, which I think not enough people are willing to, to recognize, um, which makes governance open to a lot more interpretation than, than is useful. And unfortunately, no one really talks about this. No one really um, addresses that the current legal frameworks aren't necessarily fit for purpose. There's nothing that's really designed to cope with or to to unpack this situation, which we're seeing now in 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 the Mediterranean, not just the central Mediterranean, but also the Aegean Sea and also the Western Mediterranean. Um, but instead, what uh, a lot of a lot of parties are doing are interpreting their little kind of their own interests um, as as they see fit. So, um, from a kind of humanitarian perspective, you know, um, organisations are really leaning onto the. You know the, the kind of um, you know the SAR and the SOLAS conventions and, and the requirement for masters of a ship to render assistance to, to any boat in distress. They're really kind of choosing to focus on on the fact that a boat in distress needs to be rescued, and that's the bottom line. Now, unfortunately for you know for Italy and uh, and Malta, where between them kind of post two thousand and fifteen, you know they've seen a million people arrive and seen very little in terms of of international support and solidarity. And kind of have been victims of geography in that sense. Um, you can see how over time uh, this kind of humanitarian instinct 
starts to become replaced with a little bit of um, of, of fatigue, with a little bit of kind of politicization, and the boundary starts to get blurred between um, whether this is like a humanitarian thing or whether um, you know this is in some way. Um, you know, whether this is really a sustainable kind of response at all. Like, is this, what is the outcome of, of endless, endless boat arrivals? And and we know now that the endless, um, you know, the, the endless arrivals without any kind of, um, release of pressure from the other end. So without any kind of relocations and, and resettlement program means that we have overcrowded hotspots where people, um, are subjected to, to, to awful conditions. So, um, unfortunately this is, this is kind of given birth to a, to a much kind of stronger position. It's been, um, you know, it's been allowed to spread through, through populist politics and, and the narrative has kind of shifted from, you know, it's our duty to, to save people's lives to, um, to, you know, we're kind of playing into the hands of smugglers and, and traffickers. And, um, you know, the, the term refugee, which was kind of uh, technically not always used in the correct way, but was genuinely um, quite a common term associated with the situation, became gradually replaced with words like uh, clandestino, an illegal migrant, illegal immigrant. And um, and this gave birth to, um, to, this, to, you know, this kind of creeping criminalization where um, first, kind of responsible due diligence. So, um, you know, uh, prosecutors kind of asking questions, asking totally fair questions about the conduct of NGOs, where they were getting their money from, how they were, you know, becoming aware of distress cases, you know, um, how missions were being coordinated and centralized and how they were being managed, um, started to, to, to morph into kind of Mm, investigations with a kind of pre pre drawn up conclusion. So you know the the kind of presumption of guilt came first, and then um, you know criminal inquiries came to, to to find NGOs guilty, and this became an incredibly successful um, suffocation tactic to to restrict um, to restrict the um, let's say. Um, ability of, of NGOs to rescue people. Um, and I think that the lifelines is a prime example. You know, this, um, Klaus Peter, Captain Klaus Peter was, um, was arrested on, on an incredibly trivial administrative charge. You know, whether, um, you know, whether his license was, was suited to the certification of this boat, where this boat was, was certified to, to be sailing in international waters. Um, it was nothing to do with with um, with smuggling or trafficking or migration or anything like this, anything political. But of course, the effect was that um, they managed to prolong the case for over a year and a half. And throughout that time, um, rescues weren't taking place. The boat was impounded. So for a year and a half, there was an entire kind of rescue ship, you know, which at the time was maybe about, a, you know, 20% of the entire rescue fleet um, that wasn't rescuing people and therefore not disembarking people in Malta. So when it was kind of seen how effective a strategy 
um, that could be. Um, you know, we started to see this quite quite widespread. We saw this in Spain. We saw this in Malta. We saw this in Italy. We saw this even further afield with um, the flag states of ships actually um, under political pressure from these same countries taking the flag away from ships like the Aquarius so that they weren't able to continue their mission. Um, Italy, of course, took it a lot further under Salvini in the, in the security degree and tried to draw a more black and white link between uh, kind of smuggling activities and NGOs, which, which you know, kind of meant an automatic detention of the ship, potential, um, you know, potential confiscation and, you know, massive fines. They initially kind of penned up to a million, a million euros. And this was... This is all designed to do a couple of things. It's designed to, to put huge pressure on volunteers who don't have the, the financial security to, to take uh, legal risks like this um, and, uh, and to intimidate um, NGOs from, from continuing with their missions. And when you consider that a lot of people who work for NGOs are, are lawyers, doctors, um, social workers you know, criminal record or criminal investigation hanging over you can potentially prevent you from, from working in your field. So, um, you know, I think there was a risk that people took very seriously and it has been a little bit harder in that time to try and find certain key kind of qualified professionals to, to crew um, NGO ships. So when you break it down to more easy... Um sentence you could say that um first when the arrivals increased a lot at malta um first they were kind of okay and tried to help the people but then their um, relocation didn't really work because other countries didn't take enough people and malta had like a huge amount of people arriving here without having the possibility to give them to other countries which is why the right-winged people got more louder and people became to be against refugees because they they got afraid of the number of the increasement and everything so this is why it gets harder for ngo for rescue ngos to to work and also for refugees themselves um, to find a place here so uh, the main issue malta is facing is basically about um, finding a place for the people who are arriving here Yeah, so I mean, um, I, I broadly agree with that, but uh, it, you know, that is a simple way of saying it. But um, you know, there are so many kind of additional complicating factors, and it's it, it's hard to really to really go into a, a kind of full unpack the full picture in a short space of time. But there's, it, it I think it's a little bit unfair to pen it as a, as a left wing right wing thing because it's there's this there's this real kind of um, you know, default at the moment to kind of label, um, to label, you know, everything of a particular kind of political persuasion, like fascist. And it's, and, you know, there is some kind of like extreme kind of right wing, um, mentality towards, you know, um, you know, in one dimension of opposing, like, you know, the rescue of people at sea, but that's really not to say that everyone is right wing, There's lots of, of kind of unaddressed um, issues which have contributed to this. And I think um, one thing that's happened over time is uh, we've seen, you know, growth of, of NGOs who all take slightly different positions. 
Mm. Uh, some take a much more kind of humanitarian position, others take a more activist position. Now, um, the distinction might might be quite subtle, but, uh, you know, humanitarianism works on, on certain core principles, such as impartiality, neutrality, independence. Um, you, you respond based on need and... and, and you know, the founding kind of humanitarian principles are that you will not politicize your intervention. You are doing what needs to be done to help that person most in need there and then. And it's not a political thing. It's it's it's, it's a, an ethical thing. Now, where that switches into activism is when you start to make this, um, you know, political opposition, when you're starting to, to, to kind of make this about a political... A, you know, particular political position or a resistance to someone else's political position, and that's when it gets it gets kind of like a little bit complicated because you start to mix in other ideologies into there, such as um, kind of like no no borders and free movement, and this is something that um, that has been a bit of a catalyst for this kind of um, debate about you know are are people who are arriving refugees or you know, are they illegal migrants? Um, this is this kind of um, conversation. I feel is a direct response to some people labeling the search and rescue movement as a kind of like anarchist, no border, uh, kind of subversive, um, you know, front. Um, and so, you know, people who are perfectly kind of socially and economically right wing, but don't, you know, necessarily believe that, uh, you know total free movement is is the right kind of you know the the best stable or sensible option they will then start to kind of oppose maybe the message of of particular ngos and so it's you know that there are kind of like lots of nuanced factors when you know when you kind of make this a question about whether it's a, it's a left wing or right wing um you know kind of uh dispute or even if it's that simple um and then you know we also have to be fair to Malta. It is the smallest EU member state, uh, or I think maybe still a bit larger than Luxembourg. I need to look into that. But it's you know it's it's, it's you know one of the two smallest EU states. And the population is tiny. The population is the same as um, you know as a small to medium European town. Yeah, it's four hundred thousand people. Yeah, about, yeah, exactly. So um, so you know you, you've got to be understanding that uh, you know there's there's only so much pressure that that. Um, that can be managed. There's only so much rate of of kind of um, reception and assimilation that that can be absorbed within Malta's a within their their economy and within their kind of within their humanitarian tapestry. You know, there is there's only so much kind of money and resources dedicated towards towards um, towards the the Mediterranean situation. They have plenty of costs and needs of their own that need to be maintained so it's migration can't be the only thing on the agenda and there's there's a there's a certain frustration about Malta and this feeling of isolation when it comes to to European solidarity um so I think this is maybe this is maybe where we've seen a shift in in kind of strategy from relocating people from Malta, which hasn't really proved effective for any long period of time, towards reducing arrivals through other ways. And that's when 
we start to get into the territory of non-assistance and delayed rescue and and letting boats continue towards Italy, for instance. Um, not many people who I've spoken to who've arrived in Malta are, um, you know, this is going to be quite controversial, but uh, they're not especially delighted to be in Malta. And it's, it's um, you know, I, I don't know how responsible it is, but it's, it's accurate and honest to say that, um, you know, people do have preferences and, you know, you, you know, you can quite easily, you know, be fleeing a horrible situation in, in Libya, but still, you know, have um, a country that you would prefer over another when you arrive. And if you apply for asylum, this could be based on a number of things, whether you have family there, it could be based on work opportunities, it could be based on climate, it could even be based on your language skills. But Malta doesn't rank super high on this. So there's this, there is this desire to kind of reach Italy. Um, and I think part of that is because, you know, Italy, once you, you know, once you're processed on the Italian mainland, you're in continental Europe and travel to other European countries, whether regularly or irregularly, becomes a lot easier. Um, so um, in this setting, you know, the Maltese authorities have kind of recognized that and there have been some quite legally fascinating but also kind of worrying precedents that are being set with regard to like uh, migrant boats departing from uh, Tunisia or Libya passing through um, Malta's search and rescue region, but towards Lampedusa, for instance, or towards Sicily. And we have a kind of, it turns more into a, a moral or a practical debate, I think, but there is this question about what exactly is a distress case. Now, for the you know the Maltese authorities, I think take quite a conservative view. Then, if the boat is under power, if the engine is running, it's not a distress case. Um, particularly, this is helped if the boat, if left for a couple of hours, maybe even monitored, is likely to reach an Italian Italian land, an Italian island. This creates a reluctance for um, you know for the authorities to to rescue rescue this boat and, and disembark it. And there have been even instances of boats refusing rescue, uh, mostly departing from Tunisia to try and reach Lampedusa. The Maltese authorities are very happy. Because the people didn't want to go to Malta. (laughs) Yep, um, a little bit, but also, uh, I mean mostly, but also there's this idea that um, a rescue is is also kind of being caught. Like um, for a number of years, Malta had a, a policy of automatic detention. And the idea is most North Africans... Um, you know, have have quite a quite poor hopes of of um, being granted asylum. It's of course, you know, it's uh, it's you know, it's an indiv- it's a question of individual circumstances, and um, you know, well founded fear of persecution can happen to anyone, uh, regardless of who they are and where they live. But the reality is, you know, assessments are done on the basis of of your demographic profile and your nationality. It's Mm. that's 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 a reality it's hard to prove but it's it's no secret to anyone and uh tunisians moroccans algerians they know that their chances of being granted asylum are minimal in, mm. in europe and so they prefer to to take their chances and try and reach landfall un unnoticed uh, at night and they know that if a if, you know if a military patrol vessel comes alongside them and asks them if they need assistance Saying yes means you're going to get on that boat. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be taken out, and you're going to be detained, and you're probably going to be deported. So, 
And this is also a role as well. So you have this situation where boats pass through Malta, Malta search and rescue region. The Italian authorities want them to be recognised as distress cases, so the Maltese intercept the boat before it becomes the Italian responsibility. Oh. And, um, and of course, um, this creates huge tension between the two countries, you know, who are kind of neglecting their responsibility as the other sees it. In order to kind of push the burden onto each other, so um, you know the migration thing has has you know put a lot of pressure on frontline states from you know every single direction, not just um, you know economically and politically, and but also socially and diplomatically. You know you have this pressure coming internally from from you know uh, your own citizens who maybe don't really understand what is happening and are framing quite strong opinions. Uh, by themselves and then you also have this outside pressure from other countries who you know who still expect you to do more so um you know i, I do sympathize on that level it's it, you know it, politicians are elected on the basis of of how pleasing they are to um to their voters so you know, you're never going to please anyone if, if you, you know, rescue every boat and, and try and create some kind of, um, you know, some kind of, um, you know, long-term, you know, a special residency program for, for boat arrivals, you risk becoming incredibly unpopular, which is not really how politics works. It's a popularity contest. So you're not going to get elected, um, you know, on 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 the mandate of of trying to achieve something like this um yeah so i mean there's always going to be this kind of um there's always going to be this kind of this social and political resistance to 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 mass arrivals let's say mm-hmm. um as long as people have grown up in this environment and and a kind of you know, don't really see a solution, don't see that kind of support that they expect and don't see a long-term plan. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a racist argument. I think it's, um, you know, again, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, and, 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 you know, as as long as this is the case, we're kind of straying further and further from any kind of solution that's, that's fair and, and, and humane. So what could be a solution? I mean, you know, there's there's lots of ways to approach this, and I mean, you know, you in the case of Malta, you you know, you really every country would need to have a, a totally different solution based on 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 who's arriving and where. Um, I mean, Libya is a super complex thing, and there are far cleverer people than me being paid a shit ton of money to. Can <laughs> okay. I swear? Okay, <laughs> being paid a lot of money to try and come up with solutions. So. Um, You know, I'm not gonna gonna pretend that that you know I have this at twenty past ten on a Friday night. But um, you know, <laughs> the the obvious thing is 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 bring stability to Libya. To Libya, this is this is number one. Um, you know, a, 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 you know, tackling the the kind of like displacement factors, the push factors, which are which are you know, displacing people in the first place. And, you know, these are very, very easy things to say and, and, and you know, really, really complicated things to do. Um, and, you know, these things take time. They take a, a generation. They take a lot of sustainable kind of development, blah, blah, blah. 
Um, and you know, these are long-term fixes and, and what you can't do while there's a long-term solution being worked on is kind of ignore the short-term problems, which is people crossing and, and drowning in the Mediterranean. So, you know, there needs to be some kind of, you know, search and rescue, you know, at least a state sanctioned search and rescue mission in the meantime, um, to mitigate, you know, the, the kind of the humanitarian crisis. But, um, but that by itself is not a solution. If, if the only intervention is boats at sea, then, you know, it's, we're, we're just, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're moving a beach one grain of sand at a time. This is, this is never going to work. Um, so there has to be some kind of, you know, long-term addressing of the issues as well. Um, Libya, you know, this is also a little bit controversial and it's, um, you know, Libya is one of the most dangerous kind of settings in all of Africa. There are very few people, you know, facing such extreme kind of daily risk as, as, as people in Libya, um, particularly, you know, sub-Saharan, you know, black Africans in Libya who are, um, totally at risk of, of, you know, horrendous exploitation, forced labor, um, you know, kidnapping, torture for ransom, etc. Um, but, you know, really worryingly since, uh, you know, since the, the you know, the real escalation of, of, of fighting since April 2019 when um, the Libyan National Army started to, to really kind of make big inroads, um, there hasn't been that big a drop in the number of arrivals to Libya. So this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, I think this should be a priority. I, I don't think, you know, I think there's, there's the question of agency. You know, um, you know, we, you know, we talk a lot about... Um, migrants and and refugees and or asylum seekers without actually kind of listening to them and you know we need to ex- we need to accept a couple of things we need to, to recognize that you know they are human beings with with their own capacity for decision making you know informed decision making as well and and um and you know we need to kind of start asking questions about why people are still continuing to come to libya and this is this is the starting point and, you know, we're going to see the whole bunch of reasons across the spectrum there. I think a lot of people are probably going to, you know, enter Libya with a view of trying to reach Europe. Some people are going to be trafficked into Libya. Some people are going to be unaware of the scale of, of, of risk they're going to expose themselves to. And some people are going to be aware and, and you know, they want to work and, and they think they can get away with it. You know, they think, um, you know, nothing bad's going to happen to them. It'll happen to someone else. So each one of these different groups needs, you know, a, a, a different kind of way of, 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 um, you know, a, a different kind of solution. Uh, but on some level, I think there needs to be some kind of information campaign that's brutally, brutally honest and says, you know, statistically speaking, you will die on the way to Libya. You will die in the desert. You will die transiting through Niger. You will die in Libya. You will be tortured there. You will be exploited. You will have, you know... And then if you, if you make that, you know, if you survive that, you, you know, you, there's a good chance you'll die at sea. If not, there's a good chance that you'll be intercepted at sea, brought back and then re-exposed to the same risks, both in Libya and that sea again, if you try, mm. or, you know, when, once you get into Libya, um, you know, you can't, you, there's no kind of clean way out unless you're a Libyan, you know, you're, you're North African Arabic speaking kind of, and you look Libyan there's a good chance you can cross into Tunisia through the land border. This isn't really an option that's open to a lot of, a lot of black sub-Saharan um, Africans. But, you know, there needs to be a kind of bigger effort on, on kind of working out why people are still continuing to go to Libya 
and and preventing that because um, Libya does not afford any humanitarian solutions to anyone. This is this isn't you know there's not even a, a debate there. Um, and yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure. I think a lot of people um, raise money over a very very kind of long time, and and the journey can even take one or two years. And their family will will invest a lot trying to get people into Europe so that eventually they can kind of set up a life and they'll have the, you know, they they hope they'll have the right to one day bring their family with them through family reunification. So when you kind of committed that way and you have all this pressure riding on your shoulders to kind of, you know, be the person who, you know, saves your family or pulls them out of poverty or whatever that situation might be, it's very, very, very hard to turn around. It's very hard to, to not commit. And I think this is probably one of the biggest factors in in people continuing to go to Libya, but um, you know it, it's it's super clear that uh, you know as long as people continue to go to Libya, um, you know there's only so much help they can expect to be able to receive. Ultimately, it's a war zone, and um, this would be my my first kind of step. You know, this wouldn't fix the problem, really, really, really not. But this is the ingredient that I think is being totally ignored, which. Is, you know, it's the smallest thing you can do with the biggest humanitarian impact and save the most lives. All right. Um, I would say um, this is a good overview about the situation in Malta right now. Uh, is there anything else you want to add for a final um, statement or anything like that? Um... I mean, no, I, I, you know, I need to be careful because if I get tuned to this, I could, um, you know, I could talk for hours and I'm already getting bored <laughs> of my own voice and I, I don't want to inflict my voice on your listeners. So, um, you know, I don't want to go too far down that road. But what I will say is that, um, you know, this, you know, the sea rescue thing is maybe the, you know, to use an unfortunate word, it is the kind of sexier side of, of um, the kind of, you know, Mediterranean kind of migration response it's 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 the thing that draws the most headlines and 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 you know where the kind of more exciting pictures come from and so people have a tendency to kind of think maybe this is the most important part or or you know the only thing they can do to help and actually this is such a tiny 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 ingredient in a massive process and um and actually people's people's kind of metaphorical journeys really in a sense, only actually start when they arrive in Europe. You know, every country they can arrive at, so depending on how they're relocated, if at all, you know, they can expect a totally different experience and totally different odds of, of you know, meeting their human rights. So I think, you know, if anyone is interested in anything that I said or anything anyone else, you know, any other of your guests have said and, and, and they want to take part in, you know, they want to be a part of, of, of a solution And I think people should start volunteering locally. They should start by just reading up around what their country is doing, how their country is responding, what are the basic services available to refugees and asylum seekers and, you know, wherever you happen to be. And, uh, you know, look at what your strengths are, what your what your skills, what your interests are, and just see if there's any overlap at all. And it could be something as small as just, just you know, teaching English or, or any, you know, your local language for, you know, an hour a month or something. It can be as simple as providing a little information leaflet that tells people where they are and, and, you know, what they can expect. It can be as simple as just, you know, 
reading up on the situation so that next time you go to the bar you can just tell your friends something and maybe help shift their opinions and try and slowly change the narrative towards a more kind of humanitarian one and resist you know more populist narratives but you know anything that you that you can do um yeah you should <laughs> all right thank you a lot for sharing your experiences um great <laughs>